you know, we are a gospel-centered church, a gospel-driven church, and we desire not only to replant the gospel here in our community, but also to plant gospel-centered churches in and around central Ohio. About a month ago, you met Jay O'Brien and the Scarlet City guys who are planting a church down in Clintonville. Remember them? Uh, great, great team there. Today, I want to reintroduce you to Gary Lankford. And Gary and Marilyn are heading up a team that's going to be planting a gospel-centered church in Westerville, Ohio. Ever heard of that place? Just up the road a ways. And uh, God's been preparing them for this for decades, probably. I first met Gary right down here about a year and a half ago, and we had a very interesting conversation. And at the end of it, I said, well, just kind of came out, you know, have you ever thought about planting a church? And uh, that seed just kind of germinated in his soul. And uh, he and Marilyn and a growing team have been praying over that for quite a while. And I've asked Gary to come and bring our message for us today from Hebrews. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. And would you give a warm New Life welcome to Gary Langford? Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. How are you? It is such a joy to be with you this morning, sharing God's Word. We have a great message from God this morning. Isn't it a blessing to be in this family of believers? Man, it is so great. Uh, We are so excited about establishing a sister church, as Steve mentioned, not too far away from here. Let me just tell you four quick things about our church. Uh, Every church has their own distinctives. We'll resemble new life more than we'll not look like them, but here are the distinctions. The first one is, Real life is messy. Amen. Amen. Uh, What is messy? Well, messy is the difference between what you want and what you get. Uh, Messy is the difference between the kind of marriage you always hope for and the person you actually live with. (laughs) Messy is the difference between what you hope and pray your children will grow up to be and, well, you know, (laughs) right? But, you know, we don't run from messy. We embrace messy. Messy is the real world. Messy is real life. And it's the real lives that Jesus came to save. So we're good with messy. The second distinctive is we are deeply committed to building strong men while never forgetting the first distinctive, real life is messy. It is messy building strong men. We're also committed to helping people develop the kind of relationships they really want and they really need. And again, that's messy, isn't it? How to resolve conflict, how to communicate, how to make things clear, how to respond the right way when things don't go your way. Yeah, how do you do that? Uh, Husbands, anybody ever heard this verse? Husbands, love your wives. Yeah, that's not new, right? Okay, but how? I need the how. I need some pages on the how. We emphasize the how-to. And then the last thing is we want to build a community that feels like family and friends. Everybody needs to be encouraged. Everybody needs to be part of a family and a network of friends. That's uh, living the gospel 101. So that's what we're committed to. Now, the message we have this morning is delivered to answer the question that the people this time had, which is, first of all, where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my suffering? And the writer of Hebrews has some very specific instructions for them. The thing he most wants to protect them from is he wants to keep them from turning their back 
on the living God. And so we'll see here in the next few minutes what he recommends for that exactly. Now, uh, I want to prepare you for this. Um, We're going to cover 11 and a half of the 13 chapters in Hebrews in the next 30 minutes. Uh, Unlike some people, I can go through a book of the Bible fast. I can't promise you quite the same depth that our brother did over many, many weeks in my short minutes, but uh, we're going to make a good run at that. Uh, So here's the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And then especially, why do bad things happen to me? And what do I do with that? And so this is the message that I would bring to any person here uh, who's suffering. Now, you need to know that you're in one of three categories. You've either been through intense suffering or you're going through intense suffering right now as you sit here in this room or you're going to be going through suffering. You're in one of those three categories. So whichever of those categories you're in, I urge you to pay careful attention to what God says to us this morning because you need it and all the people around you need it. In fact, if God could give us spiritual eyes to see and hearts to feel, what you would feel right now is a room throbbing with pain and suffering. It's true. The suffering is not very far away from you. If it's not in you, it's right next to you or one seat back. That is the real world. And God has a a blessing for you this morning. So let's pray and ask him to help us. Our Father, help us. We hurt. We don't always know why. We don't always know what to do but we know that we do. God, meet us this morning. Talk to us. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We open our hearts to you and say, God, give us the thing that we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, but you need to know just a little bit about Hebrews and who it's written to and why and what's going on at the time. As Steve mentioned uh, in previous weeks, there's always an immediate message for the people reading it, and then there's an eternal message for all the people coming after The immediate message is this book is written to Jewish Christians probably between 62 and 64 A.D. Why is that important? Well, there's some pretty important things going on in the world, and there's some pretty important things that are going to happen not long after they read this book. In 64 A.D., uh, Rome, half of Rome burns to the ground. This is the great Roman fire of 64 A.D. Now, Christians have experienced some persecution up to this time, but not like they're going to experience very soon. In 64 AD, in the Great Fire of Rome, Nero looks for a scapegoat, and he finds Christians an easy target. They are hated in Rome, and there's various stories about what he did with the Christians. One of the more famous and more lurid stories, in addition to having them torn apart by wild animals and things like that, was he reportedly hung them on poles and set them on fire at night for lighting. And we think this happened right after this book was written. And then six years after that, well, four years after that, the Romans start a war against the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, you wouldn't think it would take very much for the mighty Roman Empire to defeat the Jews in Jerusalem, and you'd be right, except there's one thing that history has taught us, and that is it's always harder to kill the Jews than we expect, (laughs) which is a really good thing, right? And so it takes the Romans about two years to defeat the Jews. You know, the famous story of Masada and the Great Wall, and they retreat in this fortress, and, man, they finally kill them, but holy cow, it took forever. And then in 70, the the unthinkable happens. 
the temple is destroyed. And that changes the Jewish mind forever. And so from 70 A.D. to the 1940s, there is no physical Israel. The Jews have no home. And this is going to have a very powerful effect on the people that read this book. Now, the writer doesn't know it's coming. The people doesn't know, they don't know it's coming, but it's coming. God knows. And so God gives them this word of instruction right before they're going to need it. So he's trying to encourage these Jewish Christians. He knows what they're going through. God knows what they will be going through. And he's trying to tell them what they need to know to make it through this really difficult period. And I think what you'll find is it's exactly what you need to make it through your difficult period. Exactly what I need to make it through my pain and my suffering. So let's take a look and see how does he approach this. Now, a couple housekeeping things. Um, don't be distracted by anything you see on the screen or the bulletin. This is just an outline for you to use. Some people like these. At the very least, it's a place for you to write your own notes. And when you get to the back, there's a couple typos on the top. Uh, Hebrews, the first one, it says 10, 27, 28. That should say Hebrews 11 to 14. And the second one should say Hebrews 23 to 25 instead of 23 to 15. No, we will not be reading backwards. We will go forwards. 23, 25. So um, most of you would not even notice, but all my logical sequentials and my orderly people and my OCD people, you're, you're, this is very important that I share this with you, so just let me tell you, it's going to be okay. All right? So the first thing the writer of the Hebrews does is he wants to talk to him about Jesus. Here's what a Jewish Christian needs to know ahead of persecution so that they won't turn their back on Christ, go back to being comfortable as a Jew, and turn their hearts away from the living God. Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Tell me about this Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Wow. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So he begins with, Jesus is superior to the angels. That's a pretty impressive credential. Then we get to chapter 2. Jesus made like his brothers. Now, he, before that, he warns them to pay attention. Do you know that the Bible addresses ADD? Yeah, they had ADD people back then. Here, look, read right here. 2-1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. I know, y'all, uh, many of you have struggled with this. You didn't mean to sin. You didn't mean to learn to walk away. You just kind of drifted. Oh, that's why we have church every Sunday. I'll call you back. Chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, who's the author of our salvation? Yeah, when in doubt, say Jesus. You'll be right 75% of the time. So who's the author of our salvation? Amen. So he made him perfect through suffering. We're going to keep that thought. Let's bookmark that thought. Made Jesus perfect. I thought he was perfect. And perfect through suffering. Okay, let's go on. 17, same chapter, chapter 2. For this reason, he, Jesus, 
had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted and is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, how do you learn about temptation? We experience temptation. So you might think that everyone who's tempted understands temptation. You'd be wrong. The person who really understands temptation is the one who resists temptation. Being tempted and giving in is one kind of experience. Being tempted and really, really wanting to do it and resisting it, you're not going to get caught. Nobody's ever going to know. I know I can get by with this, but I'm not going to. That's how you learn about temptation. That's what Jesus did. Jesus had every opportunity to tempt, to sin. He's God. He could have done anything, but he didn't. He resisted temptation. And in resisting temptation, he learned about temptation. He experienced it firsthand. We learn many things that way. That will come up again later. Chapter 3. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, chapter 3. Next verse. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. So his next instruction there is, okay, we have a high priest that understands temptation. He was tempted too. He resisted. Therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Later in verse chapter 13, verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This is the big risk. This is my big risk. This is your big risk. This is their big risk. This is what we have to guard against. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Okay, so where does sin come from? We get tempted, right? But why do we sin? I propose to you that most of the time we sin, it's because we have an unbelieving heart. We are not really believing that God's way is best. We are not really believing that God has our best interest at heart. We are not really believing that the suffering and the penalty for sin is greater than the pleasure and the enjoyment of sin. Sometimes we suspend belief because we want to believe that lie. But often we find we have an unbelieving heart. And what does an unbelieving heart do? An unbelieving heart sins. It's tempted and it does it. And then what happens? The unbelieving heart that sinned turns away from the living God. And as we stay turned away from the living God, we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You've experienced that. You sinned. You felt bad. You did it again. You felt bad. You did it again. You felt bad, but you're kind of getting used to it now. And then after 20 or 30 or 40, or it depends on the sin, you know, I mean, you can't do something 30 or 40 times, but you sort of get used to it and, you know, you're hard and you become immune to it. We become desensitized to certain sin and we get hard. And the writer says, no, no, no. See that you don't do that. Don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Don't turn away from the living God. Don't let your heart get hard. Don't miss the cure. 
There's a cure in this verse. Let's not skip over it. Let's see what it says. He says, but encourage one another daily so that you don't become hardened by the signals of sin. You see, encouragement is not something that some people need some of the time. Encouragement is something we all need all the time. And if you start feeling sick and sinful and hard and unbelieving, run to friends, run to family. Yes, pray. Yes, go to the cross. But don't fight with this alone. You are not made to be successful on your own. Amen? Amen. We are not made to be lone rangers. We need people in our life. We need those kind of relationships. And so we want to remember our instinct, sin, hide. What we need to do, sin, come to the light, be encouraged. Lest we turn away from the living God and have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4, here's a sobering verse. Chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. This is why it says so many times in the the Bible, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Great in majesty, awesome in power, I see everything. We're laid bare before Him. Now, how do you feel when you hear that verse? Yeah, if you're normally like, yeah. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? Look at the very next verse. I'm sorry, not the very, yeah, the very next verse. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Man, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what. All of our life is laid bare before the living God. But we can approach the throne with freedom And confidence? How? Jesus, our great high priest, made like his brothers, experienced what we experience, feels what we feel, intercedes for us with the Father, strengthens us every day. Man, what an encouragement that is. Chapter 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience, verse 8, from what he suffered, And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Now, again, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, again, you're saying, wait a minute, Jesus never disobeyed, right? You know, Jesus had brothers and sisters. One of my my favorite things to think about is imagining being Jesus' brother or sister. Right? And having my mom say, Why can't you be more like your brother, Jesus? (laughs) Are you freaking kidding me, Mom? It's Jesus. But even Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Again, why? Think back to how we learn about temptation. We learn about resisting. How do you learn about obedience? A lot of people think you learn about obedience by obeying. No, it's not that easy. You really learn about obedience when you do something you really don't want to do. So like when it says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. He really means in everything. 
Because if you obey your parents sometimes when you agree with them or when you feel like it or when it makes sense to you or when they outlast you, you're not learning obedience. And the goal is not to obey so much as it is to learn obedience and walk in obedience and have a heart trained by obedience. That's the real goal. Jesus is always getting at the heart. So Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Chapter 6 is a very harsh warning against falling away. We won't cover that much, but uh, he says it's a really bad thing. Don't do it. I'll let you read that one on your own. Chapter 7, we have a a conversation here about Melchizedek, the high priest. He's a mysterious uh, subject from the Old Testament. There's actually more about him in the New Testament than the Old Testament. All we know about him for sure is that he's an eternal high priest, and that's better than a high priest that dies like regular people. And Jesus is one of those. So that's good. Now we have chapter 8. Jesus is the high priest of a new covenant. So let's just review here. Jesus is not only higher than the angels. He's not only made like his brothers so he can sympathize with us. He's not only better than Moses. He's not only the eternal high priest like Melchizedek. He also has a better covenant too. It just keeps better and better. And so you think, well, you know, I'm a Jewish Christian. Maybe it's not such a good idea to go back to Judaism. Maybe I should stay with the better priest, with the better covenant, who's just like me, understands how I feel, but has the power to do something about it. Yeah, <clears throat> maybe I'll hang with Jesus. Then we're into chapter 9, where he talks about uh, worship in the tabernacle, and he compares the, uh, the tabernacle worship on earth with the tabernacle worship in heaven. But the real key to chapter 9 in Hebrews is understanding the blood of Christ. Now, I know you mostly understand the blood of Christ, but you have to think about this the way they thought about it then. These people had grown up with over a 1,000 years of the sacrificial system, and how does that work? Well, here's lesson number one. Lesson number one from the Old Testament when God is teaching his people about sin. First, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. That's why whenever Jews killed animals and ate them, they always had to drain the blood first. It would be disrespectful and wrong to eat the blood of an animal because the life was in the blood. You can eat the animal, but not the blood. Now, the other second lesson he teaches them is without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sins. So here he has early in their experience that they go through for centuries. I'm guilty to cover my sin. An innocent animal must die. So here's, a, you know, here's Bambi minding his own business. Walking through the woods, we shoot him, we cut his throat, we drain the blood out to pay for my sin. Well, that hardly seems fair, does it? Well, no, it's not. And that would prepare them to understand what Jesus did. So here we have life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And they realize that the shed blood of animals is always only temporary. So they always have to keep sacrificing for sins. Why? Because they keep sinning. When they they sacrifice for sins, it doesn't make them stop. It just temporarily covers it. So this is a really big deal. So when John the Baptist announces the ministry of Jesus to the public as he comes to the river, what does John the Baptist turn and say really loud? It's in all the Bible movies. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all the Jews go, wow, my mind just blew up. And so here he's bringing them to this idea here. In 10, he talks about why Christ's sacrifice is so much better than what happened 
all through the Jewish sacrificial system. So look at chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Yeah, right. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's done. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Who's that? Who's he talking about? Yeah. He's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the Lamb of God, his blood is shed one time for all the people as a payment for their sin, a permanent payment by the eternal high priest with the better covenant. That's the salvation that we walk in. Now, this was critically important because, again, not long after they read this, it took a long time for these letters to circulate throughout the world, you know, no printing presses and, you know, no trains, planes, or automobiles. Shortly after this, the temple was destroyed and there was no more sacrifices. The Jewish psyche is destroyed by the temple falling. The Jewish Christians, though, go back to Hebrews and say, oh, wait, we have the eternal high priest who died once for all. We're fine. And then the great thing happened. Jews and Jewish Christians and Christians were scattered from, is, from uh, Jerusalem all over the world in the first great missionary endeavor after the death of the apostles. So that was a great thing in the history of the church, although very inconvenient for the people who suffered through it. And that brings us to them again. Here we have in uh, 10.23. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Isn't that what we're doing this week? How many people here were thinking a couple months ago, you know, I need to make some gospel tracks and go door to door in Gehan and share Christ. Anybody, anybody here thinking about that? Anybody done that with your family in the last year? No. But now we have like 160, 170 people going to do just that. We're spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's how it's supposed to work. We need that. And then here at 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another daily and all the more as you see the day approaching. So again, he's talking about encouragement, how important encouragement is. Verse 32, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were treated that way. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Uh, we may be tested someday. The government may come someday and say, oh, the deficit's too big. We're going to take all y'all's stuff. How will you respond when they take your 401K or they take your house or they raise your property taxes or you know, they tax you instead of 30%, they tax you 80%? hey, we have a better possession. Don't worry about it. That'll be challenging, won't it? Come back to Hebrews. 
Well, now he's, he's leading up to the, the conclusion of the book of Hebrews. So he's building to a crescendo here. He really wants to encourage them. He really wants to burn certain images into his mind. And so what he does is he takes them to the hall of faith. What a great place to go for inspiration and encouragement. Now, in baseball, you've got the Baseball Hall of Fame. You've heard of that, right? Cooperstown. In football, you have the Football Hall of Fame right here in Canton, Ohio. And that's the pinnacle. You play little league ball and rec ball. You play high school ball. You play college ball. If you're unbelievable, you make it to the league. And if you're unbelievable among a group of unbelievables, you get nominated for the hall. And then maybe you get in. But to get in the Hall of Fame... Wow. Well, this is the biblical verse of the Hall of Fame. So let's learn what we can learn from these people. Who gets in? What can we learn from them? How can that help us? By by the way, I'm going to paraphrase some of these, so if you, you don't get lost by my paraphrase. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was such a good guy, he was taken up to heaven before he even died. By faith, Noah built an ark and saved human civilization. By faith, Abraham, when told to move, and he said, where? God said, that way. And he says, how far that way? He says, I'll let you know. Okay, I'm loading up my stuff. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and his wife was barren, word picture, 80-year-old woman. She's going to have lots of kids. Okay, then. Face the fact that though his body was as good as dead, yet did not waver in unbelief, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham had great faith. And so they continued to walk through that promise together. By faith, Abraham, having received the child of promise, was willing to sacrifice him on the altar at God's command. You remember Isaac. Here's this beautiful boy you've waited for all your life. You're 100 years old. He's finally here. He's 12 years old. He's about to enter into manhood. Time to kill him. What? I'm old. I didn't hear that. (laughs) Time to kill him. What? And so there he takes him up to the altar to be slain. And God intervenes. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. Have you read Joseph's story? Oh, my gosh, Joseph. Poor Joseph. Ever felt like Joseph? Yeah, Joseph makes the hall of faith. By faith, Moses' parents have a precious son. They hide him and then they give him away. That takes a lot of faith. By faith, Moses refused to be identified with the Pharaoh and wealth and power and identifies himself with the Jews, the hated slaves, and leads them into the promised land. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea. Moses didn't go by himself. All those people had to go with him. If you think you're a leader and you turn around, nobody's following. You're not a leader. You're somebody out for a walk. <laughs> By faith, Moses. By faith, the people. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. How embarrassing is that? You're marching around a wall waiting for it to fall down. Three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days. You know, after six days, the humiliation is so great, you're praying for mercy that the walls would fall down. So here they are. So, um, and by faith... The prostitute Rahab hid the spies. Okay, now this is probably a good time for us to revise what we think about the kinds of people God uses. 
The prostitute Rahab. Well, now there's a role model. But you know, on further reflection, let's go back at the list and take a look at these people in the hall. Abel offers a sacrifice, makes the hall of faith. How'd that turn out for him? Abel got killed by his brother. Did you ever wonder how Adam and Eve felt about that? (laughs) We're good parents. We got two boys and one just killed the other one. That's pretty hard to go through, wouldn't you think? And then how about Abraham? Well, Abraham uh, had this promise. The angels appear to both he and Sarah, his wife. And, of course, she laughs and says, well, his name's going to be Isaac because you laughed when the angels told you the story. And, but they believe, you know, so they're trusting God. And, but they get a little impatient. And so Sarah, now probably, I don't know, 85, 90, something like that. She says, uh, Abraham, you know, I don't know if this promise is really going to work out. I think you should take my maidservant Hagar and have a child by her. And so he looks at Sarah, 85, sees Hagar, I don't know, 30 or 40, looks at Sarah, sees Hagar. And Sarah says, I can do that. And he does that, and he has a son. You know the son's name? Ishmael. And then they have the child of the promise, Isaac, through whom his offspring will be reckoned. Do you know who Ishmael is the father of? Ishmael is the father of all the Muslim peoples. Isaac is the father of all the Jews. That was kind of an important decision with pretty significant consequences, don't you think? Yes, and so God says about Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against all his brothers. That's been true since about 600 A.D., hasn't it? We're 1,400 years in, and they're still fighting. So I'm not sure Abraham is like the perfect role model, although, again, he did some really great things, and he makes it here in the Hall of Faith. You could go through all these stories. Moses, he was a murderer. Moses, he did leads this great group of people out of Egypt, maybe a million people. He doesn't get to go in. He has a little temper tantrum, wax a rock. 40 years in the desert, doesn't get to go in. Now, you'd be saying, well, that isn't fair. Well, I don't know. I'm not God. But I see who's in the hall of faith. Now, why am I saying that to you? Because, brothers and sisters, I don't care how bad the decisions are that you have made. God is not done with you. I don't care if you are divorced. I don't care. I mean, I care. It doesn't make a difference if you're divorced or you've committed adultery or you're deep in sin now. Nobody's caught you yet or you're suffering for things known and unknown. It doesn't make any difference. God is not done with you. If Rahab makes the hall of faith, you need to know that we serve a loving and merciful and gracious God and that we have a great high priest that intercedes for us. And not only intercedes for us, but lives through us. That's the message of the Hall of Faith. Well, let's finish this chapter. And what more shall I say? I don't even have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through their faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, 
women received their dead back, raised to life. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Amen. These are the heroes of the faith. These were the conquerors and the overcomers. But let me remind you again, they're not the only people in the hall. The thing that marks the people in the hall up to that point are the people who were kicked and knocked down and kept getting up. Think about what the life of a prostitute is like. Think what it's like to be Joseph and be punished for year after year after year and sold into slavery by your own brothers. But he didn't quit. No, he didn't quit. Therefore, chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see, this is us. Do you want to know where you come from? Do you want to know who your people are? These are your people. This is our story. You have to know the stories. They are you. They are us. We are an extension of this family of faith. Their sorrow is our sorrow. Their victory is our victory. Their struggle is our struggle. Be encouraged that we have a a cloud of witnesses surrounding us in history and maybe actually in fact. There are a lot of people who believe, Bible scholars, that think the picture here is actually you're in a stadium and all around us are these great men and women of the faith, the martyrs, the blood of the saints, the conquerors, the reformers, all the people that have walked with Christ. And here they are cheering us on in the stadium, saying, come on, go, throw that weight off, head that way, go, 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 go. That's the encouragement he has to us who are suffering. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, our, perfecter of our faith. There's the fix your eyes on Jesus thing again, right? That never gets old. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary. You will not lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as son. And this is where it gets hard. This is where God speaks to our heart. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Do you know that? It's true. In some verses, that word punishes translated scourges. That's a word picture. Jesus, before dying on the cross, you know, 
the multiple thong thing with hard shells and stones and things in it, ripping his skin open, flaying it. That's what we're talking about here. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. We all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Well, sometimes. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. The NAS reads, No discipline is joyful at the time, but sorrowful. And it is sorrowful to go through discipline. We don't like it. We don't like it. But do you not discipline your children because they don't like it? What kind of mom and dad would you be? Oh, well, we don't want to have his little feelings. I understand that. I had small children. But if you don't hurt their little feelings, they'll be raging maniacs by the time they're 15 or 16. And you love them, so you discipline them. You don't discipline them because you hate them. So it is with God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Let me urge you to do this. I, I, I spend most of my days counseling. And a lot of my time is spent doing marriage counseling. And that's part of where I learned to embrace, embrace real life as messy. Um, and the, the most tragic thing for me as a counselor is to watch people going through excruciating pain and they're not being trained. You see, there's a promise here. When we go through suffering, if we're trained by it, we get a harvest of righteousness and peace. And so I ask you, brothers, I ask you, sisters, if you have to go through the suffering, don't you want the harvest? Yes, Lord. If I'm going to suffer, please give me righteousness. Give me peace. What's my part? I need to let myself be trained by it. So when I'm suffering, I don't want to resist it. I don't want to fight it. I don't want to deny it. I don't want to justify myself. I don't want to blame somebody else. I don't want to say, God, why are you doing this? I want to say, God, my loving Father, this is killing me. What do you want me to learn? I don't want to do this again. That's what you want to do. Don't make it cause you to lose your faith in God. God disciplines those He loves. He punishes His sons and daughters. Jesus learned obedience by the things He suffered. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. No servant is better than His Master. Trust me, beloved. If Jesus needed to suffer, we need to suffer. So what do we do? Four things. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Two, embrace loving discipline. Three, be trained. Learn the lesson. Pay attention. Ask God to show you. And four, be encouraged. Be encouraged by God. Be encouraged by His Word. And especially, be encouraged by your brothers and sisters. Do not go through pain and suffering alone. It will break you. You don't want that. Don't run away 
from people that love you and care about you. Run to them, cling to them. Run to God, cling to God. Don't go back. Don't turn away from the living God. Receive his love and mercy. Be encouraged. And be willing to be that kind of encouragement to other people. There are people all around you suffering. So many opportunities. You will never run out of people to encourage, I promise. Well, as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, we're planning a church in Westerville, a community of encouragers, we hope, who embrace the messiness of life and want to live real life and real relationships. Uh, we'll be meeting at Heritage Middle School, which is right next to Westerville North High School, which is County Line in Spring. Uh, we're going to meet a couple times in April, a couple times in May, a couple times in June, probably more often in July, and weekly every Sunday morning beginning in August. Uh, the best thing for you to do is get our contact information and give us yours so we can email you and you can call us and email us just to be sure you're in the loop uh, in case you want to be in the loop. And I just want to encourage you again, we only have room for like another 90 or 100 families, so please sign up right away before all the best spots are taken. Let's pray. I'll be up front right after for 10 or 15 minutes. Just come on up and meet. We don't have to go to a special room or nothing. Okay, all right. Uh, God, thank you for your wonderful word. Jesus, we worship you and praise you for being such a great priest. You are the one true God. We're so blessed to know you and to depend on you and your work and your blood on the cross and not our own work and our own effort. God, comfort us in our suffering. Help us not lose heart. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you. God, thank you for this church. Help us build more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.